Welcome back to the show. We're about to learn the secret sauce. Excellent. So, Jordan, thanks so much for making the drive up from yeah. the peninsula. Thanks Actually, for having me. Is Hillsborough? Can, I don't even know what the peninsula is, to be quite honest. I'm about 25 minutes south of the city. Uh, okay. It's far enough that people in the city usually aren't well willing to come down and visit me. <laughs> Excellent. How close to the airport, though? Like eight minutes south of it. Oh, yeah, Not perfect. too far. Yeah. It's yeah, convenient. yeah. I, I do make it to the airport. I don't make it to the Hillsborough, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, cool. So um, yeah, you have done tons, tons of open source and I definitely, I've crossed paths with you like multiple times. Well, while, while mm-hmm. I was working at GitHub, I've definitely seen your name before I even started working at GitHub. So uh, how about you like introduce yourself? Just tell us who you are. Sure. Absolutely. Um, my name is Jordan. Uh, I've been doing open source since I think my first pull request was 2010. Um, I, at this point I maintain over 350 NPM packages. Um, most of them are my own, but all the ones that are the most popular are, tend to be ones that I've inherited from other maintainers. Um, I just kind of kept showing up and filing issues and pull requests, and eventually they would hand over the keys and say, why don't you do it? And uh, <laughs> Adam, That's open source for the win. Yeah, it's well, great. Can you name a few that you currently maintain? Uh, yeah, I mean, QS, the query string parser library, um, a bunch of shims and polyfills for JavaScript language things, object-keys and object.assign, things like that. Um, I'm the only maintainer for Enzyme and for the Airbnb JavaScript style guide for a bunch of ESLint plugins. Yeah, there's a lot. And NVM as well. NVM, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. I knew NVM too as well. And I think we might even talked about this like previously. Yeah. Uh, big NVM fan. Thanks. And it sounds like you, you've definitely, you've, you're maintaining a lot of projects that like were in my sort of, as I was learning JavaScript and mm-hmm. I got part of the ecosystem. Like those are all the projects I use. Which yeah. Is like, well, I mean, and that was sort of my path, right? It was, uh, I, I started learning node in 2014, maybe 2013. And I, those were the tools I was using. I was using NVM and filing issues on it as I was using it. And, you know, as I, I was using polyfills and, you know, wanted them to be more accurate and work in more browsers. And, you know, that, that, that's sort of why I think, uh, they have that profile because that's exactly yeah. how I found them. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. So I, I want to get into that, but I actually want to talk about how you got to this point. Sure. So like we did have a conversation before we hit record, mm-hmm. uh, which is like how you got into programming in general. So do you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so let's see. The I started doing what I would retroactively call programming really young like in that um, I had a Mac when I was like 12 or 13, and I used HyperCard on it a lot. And we use it in the school computer lab as well. And so that has a programming language called HyperTalk in it. And so I would like script little dumb little games or like click this button and it plays a a tune with, you know, MIDI piano notes and stuff like that. Um, And I discovered at one point that the the game Myst was built in HyperCard and the early versions of Myst, you can actually access the internals of the game. Um, They lock that down in later versions because it's just a HyperCard stack. Um, But that wasn't, you know, it was kind of programming, but I wasn't like building anything meaningful. Um, but nonetheless, I had kind of an uh, interest in it yeah. pretty young. Um, Would you like consider yourself a hacker at that point? Like, I, I know mean, we're, we're pretty close in age. Like I would have thought I would have called you a hacker. I'd be like, oh, yeah, you know how to get. Yes, in but that's because I think as a teenager, my definition of the word hacker matches like the movie. Yes. That came out in 95. Hack like, the planet. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, it, I wouldn't call. I wouldn't call myself 
a hacker then now based on what I know of the term. Yeah. But yeah, at the, I mean, at the time, kind of anybody that did anything esoteric with computers was a hacker. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, and I was the one that all my friends and, and their parents and teachers, you know, they knew to ask me about computer questions, right? And it's not like I was particularly smart. Like I wasn't like doing any kind of wonderkind, digging into kernels and, you know, things like that. But, you know, I, I definitely understood how the computers worked and how the software worked. Yeah. Did you, did you have books or I, cause like open source wasn't the way it was right. back then. So how did you even learn HyperCard? Yeah. I mean, HyperCard, the, the computer lab teacher would teach it. Okay. Um, yeah. So I like, that was sort of the beginnings of it, but a lot of it was really just, I'm bored at home and you know, I played around on the computer and I wanted to like, I clicked on every little folder and I clicked on every program and HyperCard came with the Mac. So I opened it up and tried, they, they give you some examples with there. And so I, you know, you just kind of dig around and, and learn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how I learned HTML is like view source. Absolutely. MySpace pages and yeah. uh, eventually learned CSS was a thing at that point. And yeah. Uh, yeah, off to the races at that point. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so that was sort of the general kind of adolescence um, kind of learning and digging around. Um, and I, so when I got out of high school, I had kind of assumed that I would be doing something in computers, but I didn't really know what that would look like. And so I started and took a year, I, I, I spent my first year in college um, taking like intro to computer science courses. Um, and school wasn't really my thing, so I ended up dropping out after that. And the other thing I was interested in was psychology and, and things of that nature. So I went and worked at a group home and did social work in San Francisco for about a year and a half. Uh, but then because I wanted to be able to afford a family in the Bay Area, I uh, ended up leaving that and going back to school to a junior college and took a lot of different courses and kind of meandered my way through. But at some point, I sat down with some friends and we started a company out of, you know, the CEO's parents garage. And, you know, <laughs> I sort of, yeah, exactly. And I, I, I basically learned on the job. And there were three of us doing programming work. And um you know, we were building a website and it was kind of a PHP, MySQL standard LAMP stack thing. Um, we were using jQuery and, you know, uh, I think we actually started with prototype. And at one point we, I, I helped migrate us all to jQuery. Nice. So yeah, it's, um, a lot of, uh, you know, experiential learning, I guess. And, uh, what was the, uh, the thing you were working on in the garage? Uh, so the startup was called Mixmatch music. Uh, it was a community for musicians to share, like stems, like a, you know, a, a guitar riff or a piano loop or, or a vocal yeah. track or something, and then remix them. We had a flash sequencer on the site and you could download wave files to use in Pro Tools. And, um, you know, our business model didn't work because it was predicated on people paying for music, yeah. um, especially music they hadn't heard of. Uh, so we pivoted into a mobile app platform for musicians called Mobbase. Um, mobile app on iPhone? Yep. So okay. we started out making an iPhone app template that you could basically configure on the website and then the app would reconfigure itself on the fly to match whatever you wanted so that we could use the same like iOS code um, for everyone's app. Okay. And, uh, and I was mostly building the website. We contracted out for the, the iOS code. And uh, yeah, we did that for a while. And, you know, there's a lot of market reasons, which I won't go into here, why, <laughs> why it didn't work out. But we, uh, we actually didn't shut down the whole company until about 2015. Oh, okay. um, it just was kind of it was like a lifestyle business for yeah, it was just the last four itself. or five years of that. Exactly. Yeah. Is it, was it, wait, how did that compare to Splice and what Splice is today? Splice was one of our competitors. Got it. Okay. Uh, and it's basically the same thing. It's just that, you know, I don't, I'm not sure of Splice's exact story. I think they've gone through a few iterations. Um, yeah. But one thing is that we weren't able to get funding from beyond friends or family. And 
the other is that uh, our other big competitor at the time was Mobile Roadie. And um, yeah, there's a lot. We, we had kind of burned through all of our um, all of our funding before we pivoted to the mobile app thing. So we couldn't innovate as fast as we wanted to. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sounds like a great experience to, to, to learn how to run a startup. Absolutely. And, it makes a great interview and resume story. Yeah. Um, it's a lot, you know, a lot of fun things to talk about, uh, even though, you know, it didn't exactly buy me a car or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Uh, so, like, was there a reason why you were in the that industry or was it you just found those guys? And All decided? of the other folks that were in the startup with me were very into music. Got and um, I was there. I mean, I like music, but I was there as the, like, as a technical person and not, you know, they kind of all had the idea and pulled me in to help implement it. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. So mm-hmm. had a startup, uh, mm-hmm. that didn't go anywhere. And then at that point you took a job somewhere. The, yeah. The so I had, um, after the junior college, I had transferred to SF state and then I dropped out after a semester. Um, my startup was able to pay just enough for me to pay my bills for a year. And then I racked up some credit card debt for a year and I was like, all right, I have to get a real job. Uh, and so then I started working at a company called Brightkite which was a Foursquare competitor for a while. Okay. Um, and then later that year, they basically shut down that aspect of the product and laid off most of the company. Uh, I went to work at TripIt for a year and a half. Uh, and then I was at Twitter for three years. And then I was at Airbnb for four years. And then I was at Opendoor for five months before they had COVID layoffs. And then I was just recently at Coinbase for about two years uh, before they had their you know recession layoffs. Yeah. Wow, uh, unfortunate yeah. about the layoffs. Though. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it, it, it sounds like you had a, some good sort of uh, tours through some pretty popular projects. Actually, all those companies I've heard of. Yeah, it's uh, it's really nice. It's I would say that the being able to have a good story about yourself, a good narrative, yeah. uh, makes it a lot easier to appeal. Oh yeah, for sure. Companies. And so, you know, and I had a lot of privilege of like growing up in the Bay area and, you know, being a group that, you know, an ethnic group that nobody like questions. Yeah. You know, everyone assumes that my accomplishments are because of my skills. So, you know, because you're a hacker, there you go. So that, you know, that kind of helped me. I'm not pretending it was, it didn't give me some kind of easy mode through some of these things, but at a certain point, once you've got some things on your resume, like it's really easy to be at that point to yeah, justify. It's it. honestly like for a lot of folks who watch this and like they have the uh, sort of either intro to the tech recently or trying to break into like mm-hmm. their next thing, second job, whatever it is, mm-hmm. or maybe they're coming out of a layoff as well. Uh, my recommendation is always like you, you need to have some sort of story or something on your belt as like, I worked on some hard problems that you've heard of, yeah. uh, especially in tech. Uh, it's a lot harder when you're working for a, a sort of small time company in Kansas city, working on hard problems that no one's ever heard of. Right. Um, but the one thing I, I did want to point back to is also your in, introduction to these open source projects too, as mm-hmm. well. Cause like not everybody can get a job to Twitter, but some people can use MVM and go yeah. look to see how the source code was work. So like, I want to talk about that, like, spend some time talking about that sort of experience as Absolutely. well. So like I, I've shared this, this conversation or sorry, my story of how I got into open source. It was actually during the um, IOJS days for a note. It was like when I first learned service high JavaScript was that point. Wow. And I had no idea what was going on and I had no idea why I, could, I had to do harmony flags and all this other stuff. Yep. And uh, so I found the project that would auto invite people to Stripe or sorry, that's Stripe to Slack. Mm-hmm. Um, completely auto invite people to Stripe is a whole nother thing, but <laughs> I don't invite people to Slack. Uh, it was built in uh, Node.js, but it uses the harmony flag at that point to right. use like ES next features. And uh, I could not get it to run. So I went on GitHub, 
found the person who created it, emailed him, and then he emailed me back and said, oh, it's the Harmony flag, do that. And it's like, okay, cool, it works, but also, what is this? He's like, here's some articles, here's a blog post. Do you wanna write docs? And I wrote some docs to like unblock people, the next Mm -hmm. people that came through. I didn't become like a maintainer because it was like a, it was like a throwaway project for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually built it for Socket.io. It was like a Socket.io example oh, cool. uh, for that project. And uh, that was my introduction to open source. Like the world of, I use GitHub like SourceForge, which like most people use, which is this copy and paste stuff. Sure. Like look at the source code of things Download like things. Mist yeah. and stuff like that. But I never had any sort of interaction until GitHub. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I was curious about your your sort of your first interaction with like someone responding back to you. Yeah, I mean, I think the the ecosystem was so much smaller back then. Yeah, that maintainers really weren't burned out in, as a general group, and so I think responses were more likely and more people were more open to you know unsolicited communication. Um, but what I would say is when I was helpful, when I was saying, Hey, here's like, not just here's a bug, but here's how you can reproduce it. I took a look and I think this is how I fix it, but I'm not sure. Like anything like that, or even a pull request, right? It's, it's a lot harder for a maintainer to be upset about that. Yeah. Like they're, you're doing their job for them. Well, you do, you're doing Presenting some effort. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing that I, I try to basically pitch to a lot of folks because I get a lot of DMs that are like, hi. Yeah. And my response to that is like, hey, thanks for saying hi, but like you got to give me something more to work with. Yeah, you got to open with something. Yeah, open with something. Give me a reason why you reached out. And the same thing in my like GitHub issues. Mm-hmm. Like the issues have a form. We have we now have required issue forms inside of GitHub uh, for open source projects. Mm-hmm. And if you use the form, you get a response. Yep. If you just like write some gibberish, or like the equivalent of high in a GitHub issue, I don't have much I can work off of that. So I'm just gonna go ahead and close it with the auto replier. Yeah. And I don't even use the issue template forms because this predates it, but on NVM, I ended up putting in that like default comment, comment text. I guess it is an issue template, but it wasn't a form. Yeah. And it's because I got to the point where I was asking the same questions. Yes. What version are you using? Have you run this command? What is this command output? Like, et cetera, that it just, it got so tedious that I, I just put it all in the form. And I even like added, there's an NVM debug command. And it just prints out all the stuff that I want to know when they're f- complaining to me. And yeah. that's part of the template is, what's the output of that command? It was just, it made it so much easier. And it got to the point where people who didn't fill out the form were rare. Yeah. And then when they did, I could just say, the form's there for a reason, please fill yeah. it out and wait for them to fill it out. and the percentage, like the number of people who wouldn't apologize and go fill it out is also very small. Yeah. And so it just kind of saved me a lot of time and annoyance. And I see that a lot on projects that have those sorts of templates. It's it's not bureaucracy. It's just, I don't want to have to ask you these questions and waste all our time because every back and forth is async. Yeah. I mean, like some people like myself are, are very responsive and attentive to, to comments, but nobody should have to be. And a lot of people aren't. And Sometimes if you miss, if you need to be asked something that wastes a day. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Especially if you're working with folks like, you know, in India or in Asia. Yeah, exactly. There's like, there is, well, India is in Asia, but anyway, what I'm getting at is the, the time zone thing could be extremely painful. Uh, I've got contributors currently who, uh, this person actually in Indonesia, um, Mm -hmm. apologize. I, I, I'm seeing your face, but I can't shout out your name, but same. So thank you so much for all your contribution. Um, I know that whenever they open a PR, when I wake up, 
that I know they're not going to get to it till I go to sleep. Mm -hmm. So all my questions are like, Hey, here's a bunch of stuff that I want you to check. Um, by the time I wake up, if you answer all this stuff, then we can get this merge. If not, yeah. like, we'll we'll definitely have, there's no rush. And they get, and like, honestly, I prefer not to rush because <laughs> when I rush, I have to revert stuff because there's something I didn't think about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think the, um, the auto repliers, the, the communication async is extremely helpful, but you have a lot of things you maintain. So like, how do you, how do you not burn out? So there's a few answers to that question. So one of them is that most of my projects are simple. Yeah. There's sort of the Unix philosophy of like a thing should do one thing and one and well. Yeah. And so I have a lot of like predicate functions or like single purpose functions that it's just really hard for them to break. Like yeah. it's not like they can't have bugs, but they're so straightforward and simple and I go a little overboard with the tests. So there's just nothing to do but update dependencies every now and then. Yeah. And like sometimes there's a question. So they don't get a lot of traffic. Um, the bigger, more complex projects get tons of response. And the only thing I've found, the only approaches I've found are either dedicate a lot of time for it, which isn't sustainable, find other people who can help triage issues, which is really difficult because very few people, surprisingly, seem to want to help. Yeah. Right. And you don't even need the maintainer's blessing, right? Like there's like, I've spent a bunch of time in, in a couple projects that I've eventually been thanked for just asking the clarifying questions right away that I know that the maintainers will ask 12 hours from now. And like, by the time the maintainer gets there, they have the yes. background information. And all I'm doing is I want the problem fixed too, yeah. because it makes the tool better for me. And I'm asking the same thing the maintainer is going to ask. I'm just trying to save them some time because yeah. I know how much that sucks as the maintainer. And like, maybe not everyone I would do this to appreciates it, but at least a few of the projects I do this on have thanked me for it. And like, you know, but I think that, I think that as, you know, to your earlier question, if somebody's a newcomer and they, they want to know what to do, ramp up on a project, like read the issues and figure out what happens. And if you see that the maintainer's always asking certain kinds of questions, and somebody doesn't provide that information, you could ask. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's something that I, I shout out to one of my maintainers, which is uh, Ted, Ted Vortex. Uh, Vortex is his GitHub handle. But uh, he noticed that last summer mm -hmm. and became my sort of like, uh, he's based in Romania. So he's up before I'm even up. There you go. And would ask those questions. And like, he actually, to his credit, he built the issue forms uh, for all of our projects. Mm -hmm. And then we built them in the dot GitHub folder. So that way they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's created a really good sort of on the rails experience of anybody sort of shows up mm -hmm. and they're not, no one feels bad about like missing something because we have a lot of actions that right. will automate the response back to them and say, Hey, thanks so much, but you missed this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's been a godsend to basically say, yeah, go ahead and contribute, open up issue, whatever it is, yeah. like this jump in there. And it's like, it's the utopia that everybody thinks of open source to be right. is what is what we have right now. Uh, Cause not everybody has a lot of that structure. Well, and that's actually, even though I have all those projects that don't require a lot of code maintenance. Yeah. I am sure that there's many projects of mine that somebody goes to and isn't sure what to do and leaves, but yeah. would be a good contributor if they knew what to do. Yeah. But, I both am busy and also I have the curse of knowledge, right? Like I know how it works. So I have no idea what's going to be hard for newcomers. I can guess because I sort of remember being one, but like 
I'm not the right person to ask because yeah. I'm not the audience for that. And so that's actually one of the things I think newcomers can provide the absolute most value on is a newcomer's perspective. This was hard for me. Thanks for explaining it, but I think this would have made it clearer. Yeah. Cool. Can you pull request that into the docs? That'll help someone else. Like, even yeah. if even if you, you like you personally aren't going to be a maintainer of my package, you might be able to help the docs and bring along the next five. You know, I think I think that's a, an underused, an underleveraged like method. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's definitely because I know Outreachy uh, just started their um, applications for their open source programs uh, mm -hmm. to get um, women and non-binary folks or un generally underrepresented folks. I think it's their focus mm -hmm. uh, in the open source, and they just showed them ropes over a course of like a few like maybe weeks or months. So I'm not selling the pro uh, the the program as well, but definitely check it out because the applications are open. But okay. what I'm getting at is like sometimes we we need like way more context and intro co conversations around that, mm -hmm. which is like how to be a good beginner. Yep. As opposed to like just go find a good first issue because I think we've over-indexed on like first PR, good first issue, yep. first timers, which is all good context. But like there needs to be like a step before, which is like this is. Because as you mentioned before, like when you got into open source and same when I got into open source, mm -hmm. it was a smaller ecosystem. Like yep. GitHub, I think when I signed up was like less than 10 million uh, users worldwide. So me reaching out to somebody, it was like I was a breath of fresh air because their project didn't have any right. any sort of feedback on who was using it. Uh, but now like your project gets tons of consumption users. Mm -hmm. uh, but the challenge is like, you're not getting, you're probably not getting that sort of like, Hey, I'm brand new here. Right. How could I be super helpful? Uh, which honestly, like uh, what I realized really quickly, cause I, I, all, I, so I, you didn't get a, a degree in CS. I didn't mm -hmm. get a degree in CS. Uh, I did get a degree, but it wasn't something relevant. I learned how to code on the job. Yeah. Eventually found out that I could just learn through open source, how to like build web apps. So like I've been learning just like as Googling, as fast as I can Google, I can learn. Oh yeah. So when I found out that I can then talk to people who have built this before me and be like, hey, you maintain MVM. I've always wanted this feature. I can then like scope it out and ask the questions and you'd be like, oh, you know what? Actually, I think we actually have some half written code somewhere else. And a lot of my contributions are half written code by the maintainer. Yeah. It just gets me in and says like, just finish it. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's that's it. Okay, let's do it. Right. And uh, I don't, if so, if, I think more folks knew that and knew like the approach. I think we have like a, the ecosystem wouldn't have all these constraints around like sustainability and sponsorship and things going to die or supply chain security attacks of people just handing over the keys. Like there's a, there's a lot of issues in open source now that mm -hmm. I think we can solve eventually, but this comes down to like, I guess we got to talk about it more or right. get more people in the fold. Yeah, I mean, and, and even though IRC is is far from a uh, you know paragon of approachability, uh, the when I first hopped on IRC like 10, 15 years ago, some article kept being thrown around every time a newcomer came in to the channel and said something that was essentially a poorly asked question, and it was they passed some link to basically how to ask. Yeah, and I wouldn't recommend it for newcomers now. It's not written in a friendly fashion, but nonetheless, it's like it was useful. It helped people ask better questions that got them better answers. And I think resources like that, that are, you know, written fresh with the modern sensibility yeah. would probably be really useful. Okay. Yeah. I actually just, I grabbed the, um, there's open source guide. I grabbed mm -hmm. open sauce guide. Nice. And, uh, the hope is to do, to create some articles and one off like ex explainers. Mm -hmm. The one thing that we have that comes in our product, our, our product, our project all the time, actually all the projects is, uh, people don't know the whole rebase dance mm -hmm. of like, 
hey, there's new changes. Could you like rebase? And they're like, yep. what? And I was actually in that same position where I, I actually had a contribution to Exorcism, which is like a, a little CLI tool to learn how to code in different languages. You just mm -hmm. sort of, it's a code katas, you write tests, or sorry, you, you write code that answer the test. Uh, I learned Rust that way. It was like amazing experience. But I had a contribution upstream, um, created the PR, and then Katrina Owen actually um, is the, the creator uh, and maintainer. Uh, she was like, oh, can you rebase? Uh, like up from, um, at the time it was master. And I was like, um, I don't know how. To. So I, I got into the Go Slack and then mm -hmm. DM'd her and was like, I don't know what rebase is. <laughs> and this was like, at this point, I was like two years into, into because I'd done always merge commits, hit the merge button, yep. had no idea what a rebase was. And so she's like, oh, here's some articles. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, I'll do this and we'll get this up, like pushed upstream. My pinned tweet for like seven years has been a, a thread of, of articles on all, on essentially Git, because I haven't found anything more important to pin on my Twitter feed yet. <laughs> and it, yeah, the learning how to rebase is one of the most important skills for yeah. a software engineer. Um, it sucks that Git isn't as you know user friendly as it could be, but it is what it is, and you have yeah, to. Yeah, it, it's it. it's amazing how we've centralized around Git so much mm -hmm. on how awful of the onboarding experience it has. It and I think what we've done a really good job on is like all these content has been like oh Git add, Git commit, Git mm -hmm. push, and like everyone knows those, those three. And right. then if you go outside those three, it's like because you're some sort of genius or like you've right. you've seen like you've seen uh, like folks who come back from war like you've seen things. So it's like, I've seen this happen. Mm -hmm. Let me show you how to get unblocked out of this. And uh, I guess the, uh, I, I was going to ask a question around that, around the sort of centralization of technology. Cause like GitHub's a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of folks use GitHub and I think GitHub's changed open source, like how we look at it forever. Absolutely. Um, but I'm curious, like there's tools like Repl.it that mm -hmm. Git is not a focus. Like Git exists in the backend underlying technology, but like right. there's a ton of folks like, especially Gen Z or her learning in school mm -hmm. on how to run scripts in the browser with no, like no knowledge of infrastructure or the terminal or anything like that. So do you see that there's going to be a, another seismic shift in the industry? That's a good question. I mean, I think that there's a lot of folks that kind of cry, uh, cry foul about the last, let's call it eight years of, uh, tooling required to build a modern front-end application, yeah. right? You need a transpiler, you need a bundler, you need a linter, and so on. Um, and there's a lot of attempts to solve that problem by kind of providing an, a kitchen sink does everything out of the box tool. Um, and, you know, those are trying to focus on the user experience. I think that there's something compelling there. Um, if you can, if, if any workflow comes up that's, really easy to use, that's going to attract attention. But I think that the kind of uh, cyclic shift I'm seeing is sometimes people care more about correctness. Sometimes they care more about performance. Sometimes they care more about developer experience. And the, But unfortunately, the zeitgeist will kind of over-index on one at the expense of one or two of the others. Yeah. And... As a result, we'll, you know, so right now what I see unfortunately likely to happen is things get really simple and easy to use. And then all of a sudden we realize that we've boxed ourselves into a corner because things break in unexpected ways or they're actually harder to maintain this way or they encourage coding patterns that are actually worse. And like, yeah. 
you know, I, who knows? I can't predict the future, but um, that's kind of the sense I have. So I would love to, I would love to find a way to make version control approachable and easier. Yeah. Um, but every time you have something that's reached a critical mass of adoption, people come out of the woodwork to say, well, I reimagined it from scratch and look at this beautiful utopia that we could have. But whenever they do that, they forget about the transition period. And in my experience, uh, anything that doesn't have a good transition story is either going to die or going to be remembered as a incredibly painful, like the Python 2, Python 3 situation will be eternally remembered as like an incredibly painful, unnecessarily costly time. And like, but people are basically on Python 3 at this point, right? That's the co- that's the success story, if you forget about the transition. Yeah. Is, is people remember you forever as the poster child of a terrible transition. And like, that's the best outcome. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm thinking of a couple of different transitions that didn't go very well. Yeah. Uh, which we don't have to call them out because we can always have them on the podcast and, Absolutely. Uh, and chat about it. Yeah. Uh, but I'm curious, like even like currently we're seeing, so... You worked at Coinbase previously. Mm-hmm. The Web three, the Web five, the Web two. Like, I guess if we take a step back, like, what, what's your during? I don't even know if this is a transition. To be quite mm-hmm. honest, like, I would prefer if we just called all Web, because uh, then we don't have to think too hard about what's happening. But like, what's your opinion about this I mean, current? People state? love slapping numbers on things or incrementing numbers as a way to say this thing's better than the thing that came before it. Yeah, I mean, I. There, there, we have to have a bit of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We, we have to suspend our disbelief a little bit just yeah. because of the unfortunate nature that humans are persuadable by marketing and propaganda, right? Yeah. So like setting that aside, I think that there is something compelling in, just like as there is something and compelling in foundational and distributed version control. And even if Git isn't the thing that is around in 50 years, um, you know, Maybe something better will displace it, but the concepts are not going away. Yeah, that is the way. Like the, conceptually, yeah, yeah the collaboration the be done from now on. Yeah, collaborating through open source or even just just to get itself right. Um, miles different than when it was like with SVN and and Perforce exactly and everything like that. And my suspicion is that the concepts of blockchains and distributed ledgers of transactions and proofing mechanisms are definitely going to be foundational for a very long time whether any of the current implementations survive that long yeah i'm not gonna i don't have the expertise or the desire to like talk about that to guess on that publicly but i think that um that it would be foolish to ignore the underlying concepts even if one has believes in flaws in all the current implementations yeah yeah, and I think they, um, it, it reminds me of like the, with uh, Reactive Flux and when there was like yeah. so many different Flux Im- implementations from coming out of Facebook mm-hmm. and we ended up centralizing on Redux uh, for a time, but everyone had their own flavor. But mm-hmm. most people, when I bring up that, that story, like most people remember, they don't even know there was that many Flux implementations. Right. And because uh, we, we successfully transitioned to like, oh, this is how state management works. Now we have a couple choices. Right. Uh, if you get any sort of front end web apps, uh, but yeah, the world was way different back in the day. Local storage yeah. was a lot harder to deal with. Yeah, I mean, I sort of have this like, you know, old man shaking fist at cloud response every yeah. time somebody complains about the complexity of of modern web development. It's just kind of like, like 
you know, in my day, you know, I just have like, and it's not because I'm of my age in particular or anything like that. It's just every calendar year worth of web development is full of a ton of just BS that you don't have to deal with anymore. Yeah. And it's just really hard to feel too sour about the current state of things when I remember the last 20 states of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's the, um, I did a tweet actually last week around the, uh, the JavaScript fatigue is actually fueled by a lot of newcomers who didn't yeah. know what it took to get here. Yeah. Uh, so it's easy to complain about, oh man, this person's not right. using, or this project's not using the flavor of the week that I know. Right. Um, like I've had a couple conversations with junior engineers that are like, I helped them to get their first job. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of did a bit of mentorship and try to mentor them out of the idea of like, I only want to re- write React code. Right. And that's the only way I want to get a job. I was like, oh, you know what, maybe you should zoom out a little bit and like right. touch a little bit other things to expand your horizons to get a job faster. Right. And it's, it's not that those complaints are invalid either, yeah. right? Like, I mean, I was born into a world where electricity and television and, you know, telephones existed, right? I can still find fault in those things and my criticisms might be valid, but like, you know, the, in order to change things, you have to know why they are the way they are. And you also have to know, uh, have to have insight into what would be better. And so just as some, a veteran probably cannot change things effectively by themselves, a newcomer also cannot. You have to find a way to combine all of those things together and and with the knowledge of why things are the way they are, build a transition period to something that's better. And like, like, and I just see so many projects skipping a lot of those steps and trying to yeah, develop each of those pockets. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I, I want to touch base on the, the amount of projects you're maintaining mm-hmm. and like, how do you do Like, are you, do you have any plans for sunsetting or end the lifing anything? I mean, all, like all the simple ones, um, Never, yeah, right? They're, because they're they're single purpose and like there's, you know, I have a function that says like, is this a weak map or something? And like that does what it says on the tin. It will never do anything different. No one should ever waste time writing that code again. It exists like done. But something like people have asked me that question about Enzyme a lot. Um, yeah. So I have been the sole maintainer for too many years. I have not had enough time to work on it for too many years. I still hope to, um, but at the moment, it is a tough sell to use Enzyme uh, because it doesn't support React 17 or later yet. Yeah. And so a few folks have essentially tried to badger me into sunsetting it. And if there was something that was equivalent and better, I would be happy to do that. I would try and I would before I wouldn't just sunset it I would actually try and come up with a migration story yeah a way to get enzyme users onto the newer and better thing and then I would sunset it at that point but there isn't anything better there are alternatives that have different trade-offs and don't cover all the use cases but that's not the same thing yeah um, and so I think that leaving it unchanged is not worse than sunsetting it um, in that scenario yeah. So, you know, kind of for all of the things I have is if they remain useful and if there are no better alternatives, like I, I, I know I have no legal obligation uh, to, yeah. to keep maintaining them forever, but I'm effectively going to do that. And, you know, uh, yeah. yeah. How do you, how do you keep track of, cause enzyme, I, I remember using enzyme actually when I was working at Netlify, mm-hmm. um, extremely useful test library, especially leveraging it with react. Mm-hmm. Um, 
my question is how do you how do you track usage like how do you even know if it's still useful today like how do you answer that question um so that is a very good question i mean i can look at npm download counts but those as absolute numbers aren't really useful they're more useful as relative numbers yeah right um because you know they include they don't show all of the enterprise usage because a company will download it once and then use it a billion times internally. But they also do count the like 300 NPM mirrors out there. You know, so it's, you just have to compare them to each other. But um, I can kind of get a sense of it from how many people are still commenting on issues asking for things to be fixed, um, things I still hope to fix. Um, but yeah, there's really no way to know. Um, the... I just kind of have to use my best judgment and, and paint a picture of it in my head. And based on my experience at the last few companies I've worked at, the if you start scratch from if you start from scratch right now, you wouldn't probably use Enzyme because you'd want to use React 18. Yeah. But by doing that, you're missing out on a whole class of testing that's very valuable and catches a lot of problems. And I don't know. I uh, I see the value there, and so it like. I, I see that as inherently useful. So it almost doesn't matter if anybody's using it until yeah. a solution for that exists. That's yeah. better. It's, it's almost like if, as long as it's still working and folks can go back in the archive and yeah. be like, you know what? You remember, I remember back that in my time I could test this way. Yeah. Perhaps there's like some sort of bridge that people can develop. So I guess there's, if there's a way to people to this, basically maybe you're listening right now, <laughs> yeah. walk into the enzyme and be, how can I be helpful today? you might almost have like a, a mentor, but also a pathway to open source. Absolutely. I have been waiting for people to, so I get a lot of complaints from people in companies about what well, we're blocked. We can't, well, companies have money and people yeah. and people have time. And that's, those are things that I don't really have at the moment. So if anybody showed up and was able to come up with enough money that I could justify, like at the moment, not looking for a new job for a month so I can work on this instead, yeah. I would be happy to do it. And similarly, if any company showed up one tried and then ended up bailing on it. If any company showed up and said, we have people to put on this, can you help them? Like, you have my axe. Like, I'm here. I, I will jump on video calls. I don't have a job right now. It's the perfect time to jump yeah. in and, like, you know, borrow my time. It, but in all of that time, uh, despite these companies potentially, like, losing tons of dollars of, like, person hours of worth of money, nobody's volunteered either. Yeah. Like, money or people. Yeah, it's it's a it's a common problem in open source, and uh, hopefully, like someone will solve it. Maybe we can help solve it. And, and just to be clear, I should actually I'm slightly over exaggerating. Yeah. There have been two or three people that have put up some pull requests that are until recently were incomplete. Um, but it's I, I need people to actually kind of pair with me on it yeah. um, to to you know get it released. So it's it's not like there's nobody, but yeah. Given the number of complaints I've received, the number of people volunteering is is staggeringly low. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 shocking. Um, like when you hear stories about this, like I think um, Curl had a very big push a couple of years ago because yeah. it was like they were a very similar position. Everyone used it. Uh, it wasn't going end of life or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But it was very clear that there was one person steering the ship for the longest time, uh, and that story got sh told quite a bit to now where. Hopefully, it's just, I, haven't, I haven't talked to Daniel in a couple of years now, but the hope is that it's sustainable. He's paying the bills. He's not working full-time anywhere else. Right. Uh, so apparently, it's paying enough of the bills to, that he can continue working on it. But there's tons of projects like that where a lot of question marks around, like, how, how does this thing even have a path forward? Right. And I think it's just around 
storytelling and, and sharing. And I yeah. think as I, GitHub's done a great job of like having like the README project, uh, like mm-hmm. sharing stories and getting people engaged in projects, but uh, sharing that pathway. But I'm hoping with this conversation and with other conversations on this uh, YouTube channel that we can continue to share these stories. So mm-hmm. um, I think we're, we can wind down. I did want to ask you really quickly around sure. the, the future of JavaScript and like all this sort of ES builds and, and buns and uh, Deno and, or is it Dino? Like what's your, what's your take on that? Cause like, as you're working on stuff that people were all using like five years ago, mm-hmm. now we have this whole new ecosystem of people injecting Rust and Zig and stuff like that. Let's see. Um, so in the vein of transition stories, I think any solution that doesn't seamlessly interoperate with the largest code repository across all languages across all time, which is NPM, uh, is doomed. Yeah. It cannot survive. Um, I think that projects that add constraints and attack vectors to an environment that doesn't need them are also making mistakes. Um, I'm being intentionally vague here. And I think that... Uh, it will be very interesting to see if tools for JavaScript that are not authored in JavaScript are actually able to have sustainable maintenance in the coming years because these things tend to get a lot of hype early on and a lot of people jumping in. Yeah. But um, the the language market for even something as some things as proven as like Go or Rust is still much smaller. There's yeah. much fewer people like skilled enough that they would be able to jump in and maintain a project written in those languages compared to the number of JavaScript developers. And um, a project tends to succeed when its users can work on it, in my experience. So, um, you know, I I don't want to be too fatalistic, but I'm interested to see how it all plays out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's honestly a great take too as well, because during 2020 when they had the whole, was it Fortran or COBOL? Uh, when they were trying to get a, a bunch of financial programmers to work like on those Cobol, systems. Maybe. Yeah, it might have been yeah. COBOL. There was like articles around like there's not enough COBOL programmers yeah. during this sort of hype. Because at, at, in 2020, there was a hype in the market mm-hmm. and it could not sustain itself to even grow because there were not, not enough engineers right. in that language. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a little different in the sense that like banks should have migrated off that 30 years ago, yeah. but like, you know, they didn't prioritize managing technical debt, but it's still the... Um, like software is only maintainable if there's a pool of maintainers for it and you can't get a bigger pool right now than javascript developers so that's uh that is a large trade-off to take yeah and that's a great term for a little (laughs) performance yeah yeah for sure well jordan thanks so much for again making the drive up having this conversation um yeah it's nice to honestly i don't think we actually met in person i think it might be the first time yeah so yeah great to meet in person as as well. well and uh looking forward to future collabs Thanks, Sam. All right, and uh, make sure you like and subscribe. The Secret Sauce of the Podcast produced in-house by OpenSauce, the open source intelligence platform providing insights by the slice. If you're in San Francisco and interested in being a guest on the show, find us on Twitter at SauceOpen. And don't forget to check out OpenSauce at opensauce.pizza.